welcome to the Vacation Impossible podcast. Today is Sunday, December 3rd. This is Ray. I'm coming to you from uh, the Hilton at LAX Airport. And uh, I've just been uh, spending the day here. I'm going to be meeting up with Sam tomorrow when we're going to be sailing on the Inspiration, doing our annual four-day cruise to Catalina Island, Avalon, and uh, Ensenada, Mexico. Uh, it's a four-day sail, so it also includes one day at sea. It's basically a repeat of this cru- the first cruise I ever went on with Burton, um, except that we're doing it here in the first week of December, where it's much cheaper than when Burton and I went, which was on spring break in March of 2013. So uh, we've gone on this cruise, or at least I have, in some version or another, um, every year uh, since. So from 2013 onwards, it's sort of an annual tradition. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. Catalina is always nice. Um, particularly, I'm looking forward to Ensenada just because the the boardwalk that we had seen last time, it wasn't completely done. The boardwalk itself was largely done. I think they were just testing out the water fountains for the first time. But they were also having a lot of different um, construction that was going on a little bit further along that looked like a lot of restaurants and stores and things that they were going to be building. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing if that has come along. And if so, you know, how well it's come along. And, um, yeah, so that's nice. It's just a cheap little milk run, little, you know, quick four-day round-the-block thing. But that's rather nice. Uh, you might remember we had said that we were hoping to record at Portland Retro Gaming Expo again. Unfortunately, uh, second year in a row, we had the full intention of recording a podcast there, um, but it just wasn't meant to be. And it's just, it's it's such a challenge, um, especially because we try to fit it in in a weekend. I might take one day off work to go. I wasn't able to this year uh, for a variety of reasons. Mike wasn't able to get the time off early. So, um, you know, we're driving there and back. So that's from Vancouver to Portland and back. And uh, I definitely always want to, at the very least, uh, you know, say hi to Pat Contry and Ian Ferguson if he's there. And I also uh, want to attend Pat's two panels, the CU Podcast Live, as well as the Play the Punk Challenge. So um, given all of that and the fact that, you know, it's it's always a road trip, it's, there's always several people uh, with varying interests and different things that they want to do and time and energy and all those things, uh, it's not always possible to record a podcast. Uh, Portland Retro Gaming Expo 2017 was fun. I enjoyed it. I got to ask Pat a bunch of questions. During the Q&A for both sessions, I was one of the first couple people in line, so that was kind of nice. Um, I think I figured out who Pat's girlfriend is. He's been talking about his lady friend on the podcast, and um, in his um, Pat the NES Punk videos, there was the character of Denise who was in the Graphic 16 episode and came up during the X-Men episode as Storm and has appeared here and there as well. And so I noticed that uh, while she wasn't at any of the panels, uh, she was sort of behind the scenes at his booth. So I'm thinking Pat and Denise are a thing. I don't know. Maybe I've broken it here first. Um, but that's sort of how it looked. And hey, I, I'm all the more power to Pat. I'm happy that he's, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's found somebody that he enjoys spending his time with. Um, and so uh, I think that's fantastic. I, I wonder what that's like for single YouTubers that have like over 200,000 subscribers, you know, like, like are the fans ever kind of approaching you for that kind of thing? Are they, are they interested in you romantically? And how do you filter that? How do you process that? Like what if one of your fans is potentially your soulmate or your potential homicidal killer? <laughs> You know, like, you, how do you, how do you, how do you, is it, is it maybe just a good idea that the rule should be never get involved with your fans, like, at all, if you were a single person? I, I don't know. Um, it's, but it's, it, you gotta, I gotta wonder about that sometimes. I don't know. But, um, 
Anyways, just some uh, things that have happened on this trip so far. Uh, so, I'm staying at the LAX Hilton, and it's very nice facility on the inside. Uh, those of you watching on YouTube can sort of see behind me that the room is actually really quite nice. And it's got a pretty decent view as well, which is also nice. And it's not quite as close to the airport as the Westin in the sense of you're not as close to the planes. But it's actually a little closer to get to taking the shuttle. Because, you know, when I took the shuttle to get to the Westin when I was here in 2015, it went by the Hilton. So uh, it's, it's closer in terms of a commute, but further in, in terms of sound, which is a double win, really. Uh, the only problem right now in this experience at this hotel is that there's a lot of construction going on. So while the interior is fantastic, getting around either by car or on foot is quite a challenge because most access points are boarded up with massive construction. So... You know, that just figures. Last couple times I've been to LAX, LAX itself has been under such massive redesign that there was nowhere to plug in, there were no working power outlets, and, you you know, constantly detouring, stores weren't open, there was plywood everywhere, it wasn't a very nice experience. Uh, and so it looks like the Hilton LAX is following in their footsteps, and now that that's what they're going for. So their common areas are still quite nice, but, you, you know, it's just, you can't get to the area. There's like a... Uh, about a block away, there's a Carl's Jr., another block after that, a couple gas stations, another block after that is a Taco Bell, but getting there by foot is a little dodgy. You can do it, but it feels a little uncomfortable. Your narrow walkways that you got plywood and construction going on all around you. You have to basically walk in the street uh, to get from the uh, pedestrian access to the hotel to the sidewalk. So um, it's not ideal, uh, and maybe that explains why I was able to get a pretty good price here, but... Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a good hotel on the inside, and that's where, if you're spending most of your time, that's where it really kind of counts. And I was able to get a good rate, uh, just kind of as a travel tip, is um, they have something about, like, the Weekender Plus or something. So, like, Hilton, for their ad campaigns for years now, has been like, oh, be a Weekender. And they're trying to encourage people to travel on the weekends, rather than taking the traditional week or two off of, uh, you know, work and school, because, you know, that's obviously going to expand their the con consumer base if people go more frequently. And so the idea is, is that uh, if, you're, if you're booking a Saturday, but you also stay a, stay a Sunday night, the Sunday night's half price. So when you average that out, this worked out to about $111 US per night prior to taxes and fees, which is uh, fairly nice for the facility that this is. So uh, I'm still fairly pleased with it, uh, even if it is a little bit of a pain to walk in and out of. The flight here was interesting. So I was flying on Delta, and I booked through Expedia, and I went through one of their cheapest options. And one of the sucky things about the cheap options with Delta is that they um, they don't let you do an online check-in in advance, really. Uh, you can give them some of your information, especially if you're part of their loyalty program, which, general pro tip, always join the loyalty program for airlines. It doesn't cost you anything, and even if you never do anything with those points, it helps your TSA pre-check, your Nexus work a little bit better, and it might increase your likelihood for an upgrade. Um, and that's the funny thing here is that normally, uh, you know, I figure I got the cheapest of the cheap tickets. So you get to the gate and I'm like, I might not even get a window seat. I might, you know, be stuck between two people. Who knows? Um, and with the new sort of TSA rules, you have to, for international flights flying to the United States, they recommend to show up at the airport three hours in advance. So I did check in in person three hours in advance. Their automated kiosk couldn't read my passport. So I had to go talk to a human being, but thankfully there wasn't a line. And then I get to the gate, and so I spend like two hours at the gate, you know, on social media and stuff like that. Uh, so I was having some fun with some Snapchat filters and posting on our various social media platforms. Um, and then they called for if anyone had um, 
carry-on luggage that they wanted to check because the plane was going to be, it was sold out, it was full, and so the overhead compartments get full very fast, and so they always often ask for volunteers. And whenever it's like a single-leg trip, I'm happy to volunteer. Or if it's the last leg in a journey, uh, and I don't have a tight timeline on the far side, if I'm not landing at like 11 p.m., I'm, I'm happy to volunteer. Because, um, you know, then I don't have to fight with my luggage. All I have to do is wait for it to come out of the turnstile, which is normally not more than 5 to 20 minutes. And so it's a little less stress for me, and I'm helping out by making that space available. It means boarding the aircraft. Uh, it goes faster, and it's easier when I'm getting off. So there's a lot of benefits, and it's free. It's a nice thing to do. And so when I went up to volunteer, I was the only one. I was the first one, and I got a free upgrade. But it wasn't exactly first class. It was something called Delta Comfort or Comfort Plus. So... Uh, he said, okay, your boarding pass will say Sky on it, so you'll, you'll board right after first class. You'll be called for the Sky group, and then, you know, you're, you're supposed to have, like, a little bit more room, unlimited uh, snacks, and alcoholic beverages, even. So that was kind of interesting. So I was wondering what to expect, because, as you recall, previously on the podcast, I had reviewed WestJet's equivalent to first class. And so this, and, and, it, and it wasn't full first class, and I got some hate on Reddit for that, let me tell you. Some people on Reddit were telling me, you know, oh, this is no first class. Let me tell you, compared to the Comfort Plus, WestJet's first class is fine. Um, this was, it did feel very different. So if you're in a situation where you're flying with Delta and you're thinking about paying extra for Comfort Plus, my advice is that not to bother. I don't think it's worth it. Um, the seats might have been slightly more roomy, uh, but not in a super noticeable way. It really didn't feel any different from when I'm flying with another airline and I check in online early and I get myself a window seat because I was in row 7. So I'm near the front of the plane. Um, so that was about it. So let's break down the two other pieces. Unlimited snacks. Okay, uh, they ran out of snacks pretty quickly. So the first time they come by asking for snacks, I had my choice. And so I took the cookies because the Delta cookies are tasty. If you're on Delta, get the cookies. They're good. But if, but then they came by the second time and all they had were pretzels. And I think I got like the last pack. And I'm in like row seven, pretty close to the front. So the unlimited snacks, they ran out. It's not a big benefit. It's not like I could have, and it seemed to be just snacks. It's not like I could have gotten Pringles or, you know, beef jerky or something. Or if I did, they never, they never made that clear at all. Um, because there was no, there was nothing in the seat pocket that indicated the, the perks of the seat for me. I think the row ahead of me had one, but my row, there weren't any, even though we were both uh, Delta Comfort Plus. So there's that. Then there's the unlimited alcohol. It's not exactly what you'd think. In first class, you'd be like, hey, I want a rum and coke, you know, um, screwdriver, whatever. Uh, and, you know, wine, we'll bring that to you. That's fine. For Comfort Plus, it's not exactly like that. For one thing, you don't get that additional service. You, uh, any additional stuff you get is when everyone else is receiving their, their service as well. It's all available during drink service. And so for the alcohol, they've got like one bottle of wine, uh, and then they've got the little mini bar bottles. And so those you do get. Uh, you know, yeah, for free. To me, that doesn't seem like a huge benefit. Um, I think that those are like eight bucks normally. So if you're paying more than like eight or sixteen dollars, and you're going to drink more than one or two of those things, like I just, it, the math just doesn't make sense to me. So I wouldn't pay more for it. But it was, I suppose, it was nice to have the upgrade. That having been said, we were delayed for 
little over an hour getting off the tarmac in Vancouver. And ironically, Sam, who uh, preceded me on this trip, Sam is doing a back-to-back-to-back because we've never done that before and we want to find out what it's all about. I didn't have enough vacation time left, so Sam's doing that and I'm joining him on the third leg of his back-to-back-to-back. So he, he flew down like a week and a half ago, and he was stuck on the tarmac for a good extra 45 minutes as well. Um, and so it, he says that it's a, it's a theme with Delta. He says that he can't remember the last time he was on a Delta flight that left on time. So um, I, I, that hasn't been my personal experience. I don't fly with Delta a lot. But, um, yeah, so that was, that was kind of... Um, that was not great, but thankfully, my arrival time was supposed to be around 5, so instead it was a little after 6. I, you know, I was hungry, I got into the hotel, I was going to do a bunch of social media stuff, and I was like, no, I checked in, I went and I got myself some Taco Bell, and I'm like, I am done. Uh, and then I just sat and I was binge-re-watching binge Star Trek Discovery, which I highly recommend if you haven't watched it. Uh, and then I just went to bed. So, that's sort of been the trip so far for me. Um... So, uh, Sam has a new Instagram username. He can now be found as Savage Hawkeye, which I think is a really cool name. Coming from somebody who is stuck with the nickname Cowman, I very much like Savage Hawkeye by comparison. Uh, he says it's a, it's a car thing. I'm not that familiar with it. Um, to me, it makes, some, it makes sense for Sam uh, because he sees everything. Uh, he's very observant. He often sees things that I miss or that other people would miss. Uh, and he's savage in the sense that he, you know, if you're an adult, he, he's not about letting any people off the hook. You know, if, if you've done something mean or stupid, he's the kind of guy who holds you account to that. Um, and I think that's good. He doesn't suffer fools gladly. And so I think Savage Hawkeye is an awesome name for Sam. So I hope it sticks around. So follow him on Instagram. Um, so other things that are coming up in the near future that's currently planned, uh, we have definitely, as I mentioned previously, we have a cruise booked on the Carnival Miracle in June, uh, going to a variety of different places, including uh, the sloth uh, excursion that Mindy wants to do um, on that sale for her birthday. And Sam and I are also talking about possibly taking a cruise on the Carnival Freedom in February. Uh, we've He's requested time off work. I've booked off some time from work, but we haven't booked anything yet, so nothing's confirmed. But uh, that's the current idea. So that could be our next trip. So um, thinking about the world of social media and video production, uh, we have some, some interesting news that happened just a day or two ago, which is vid.me, vidme, has announced that they're shutting down. They had, they were trying to be an alternative to YouTube. They were trying to combine YouTube and Reddit, where basically you post videos, then they get up and down voted. Um, so I had gone to a local Vancouver YouTubers meetup back in, I think it was August with Mike, and we had met someone who was actually a professor at a local university, um, the BC Institute of Technology, BCIT, and she had suggested that we try VidMe because she was saying that's sort of like the future and it's a really good platform and she liked the platform, wanted to see more uh, content creators, and she said that the travel space, which is our space, wasn't very competitive. Uh, and so we could have a real good opportunity there. So I've been working on mirroring some of our content there, and now they're shutting down in the middle of December. So if you're following someone there, uh, you know, find them somewhere else because it's shutting down. If you're hosting things there and for whatever reason you don't have copies of the things you've put there, uh, you've only gotten to like the 14th of December to download them. They gave you less than two weeks' notice about this complete shutdown of their service. They are apparently planning on launching some new something something in the future, but it sounds like it might be an app or something. I don't know. I don't think it's a hosting platform. So vid me, we hardly knew ye. Um, 
One interesting thing that's going on sort of in the world these days is I was reading something in, um, it was Popular Mechanics, I believe. Uh, they had, um, when I was coming back from Hawaii, they had an issue out about video production, and since that's sort of a big part of what we do, I was reading it, and they were talking about millennials, and I'm not a fan of that label, but we'll use it for convenience purposes. They were talking about how millennials um, are buying into one, uh, the concept of fake news. And it was interesting to me because it's not what you think when, at least the article was suggesting, that it's not that, this was like Casey Neistat's kid he was talking to, and, uh, and his kid used the term fake, fake news, and he wanted to unpack that to find out what's going on. And so it's not that they think that people like CNN or MSNBC or whoever is lying. It's not that. When Apparently, at least when some millennials use this term, it's not that they think that the information is false. It's that the people are insincere or inauthentic is what it is. That's, it's fake. Fake in the sense of not a lie. Fake in the sense of like it's plastic. It's not, it, 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 and so it's talking about newsreaders, hosts, you know, people at the desk of national broadcasts not really connecting with their audience because they probably are they're in their business suit and they're using somewhat more formal language and they're reading from a teleprompter. And so to them, it feels fake in the sense of like production cost and value and effort and things like that. It's not that they think they're being lied to, it's that it's insincere. So I think that's really interesting. Um, and so I wonder about, you know, people like Anderson Cooper, Rachel Maddow, you know, Keith Olbermann, whoever's out there, whether you're, you know, Keith Olbermann creating content for GQ, although he's recently stopped doing that, uh, exclusively on YouTube, uh, or, you know, if you're a traditional broadcaster, but the content's being mirrored on YouTube, um, you know, those three names are people that I think of as having a pretty good authenticity about them. Whether you agree with their personal position or their reporting or whatever, um, they seem fairly, you know, Jake Tapper, for example. Uh, I, I have a running gag where, like, you can see on his face when he loses patience with someone and he is just done with you. And then he just keeps repeating the same thing over and over again. It's sometimes frustrating, but it's sometimes very funny for me. <laughs> so, like, some of those people I see as fairly sincere, uh, and so I feel like as an audience I can connect with them, whereas if I'm watching like Don Lemon, for example, um, that that feels fake in the sense of plastic, not fake in the sense of a lie. But it's like I don't feel like I'm connecting with the person. I'm not like it, it feels some degree of inauthentic. I'm, I'm having some trouble articulating it because it's a new idea to me. But it's interesting that the two sort of different branches of fake are going in different places, but they're kind of being commingled and confused. And so some people go to YouTube, um, like vloggers and stuff, for their news because it's not fake in the sense that it's authentic and real and identifiable and not prepackaged, sort of homogenized, corporate-approved stuff. And that's where, like, uh, DeFranco and people like that probably are seeing a lot of success is a result of, of that sort of... Um, distinction. And so for me, I, I just found that really interesting. And so I just kind of wanted to share that potential insight because when you see the term fake news, it might not mean what you think. There's, there's a couple different perspectives of that. It's not necessarily saying someone's lying to you. It's that they're presenting it in a way that is artificial. Uh, and I think that's fascinating. Um, I don't know what to do with it, but I think it's interesting. So I thought I'd share and talk about it for a moment. Um, we try, we try not to get too political here, vacation impossible, but it, it talks about like YouTube and stuff like that. So I thought it was relevant. Um, 
Speaking of accuracy in news reporting, uh, uh, it's not exactly a correction, it's clarification I want to make from our previous podcast. When I was editing it, I kind of realized that I may have been unclear when talking about saving money on cruises as it relates to children being in school. So I want to say crystal clear now. When children are in school, cruises are cheaper. When children are out of school, cruises are more expensive. I might not have said it as clearly as that in the last podcast, so I wanted to make it crystal clear. So if you're thinking about booking a cruise on spring break, Christmas break, summer break, reading break, these are times where you're going to likely see an increase in cost. Whereas maybe mid-January, late September, like, you know, certain times in November, wherever, these times where children of school age... Um, whether it's, you know, elementary, secondary, or post-secondary, university ages, college, whatever, uh, if those people are in school, then, like, those people are likely not traveling, uh, their families are likely not traveling, and that's when things get cheaper. If you do have a child that is school age and you're able to pull them out for a week or something, then they can be a lot cheaper. Um, but, of course, you're going to want to talk to the, the teacher or, or whatever institution and uh, make it clear that it's okay with them before you book something, hopefully. And if they give you some pushback... Uh, not that we've been given pushback, but we're prepared for it, um, because we talk about being able to see the world and getting cultural experiences. And frankly, when Julian's traveled with us, he has at times had homework assigned to him that he did on the ship. So, um, it can, it can make a huge difference in cost. And if that's, uh, how you get your school-aged children to see the world, it might be worth it if you time it appropriately. Obviously, like, if you're in college and doing it during exams is a bad idea. Um, but, you know, if you're in uh, elementary school and it's, you know, the second week of school maybe or something like that, it, it might be worth considering because that real-life experience and being able to see it and hear it and touch it and be there. Uh, you know, like one of the things that we did on the tour that also took us to hell in Grand Cayman was showing us one of the first places where slavery was actually abolished uh, in the Caribbean. And getting the history from a descendant of somebody who was involved in that whole experience and process uh, of, you know, forming their own governance uh, as a breakaway from Jamaica and all this other stuff, it's absolutely fascinating. And it's going to stay with me more and longer than had I read it in a book. So I think there's a lot of educational value to travel. I mean, it's a big part of why we do what we do, Vacation Impossible. We believe that seeing the world is of value in so many ways, uh, and education is definitely one of them. So that's something to think about. Uh, And so I just wanted to make that very abundantly clear uh, in case I wasn't clear enough in the previous podcast. Speaking of the podcast, I've decided to stop looking at our viewership numbers. I had been looking at them and because it's nice to see, oh, so, you know, five people watched today or something like that. Um, But you know what the funny thing is, is with Vacation Impossible, I do a lot. I manage the YouTube channel, you know, edit videos, make thumbnails, upload. Uh, I write blog posts on Tumblr. I post pictures on Instagram. We're all over the place. I'm slowly figuring out Snapchat. And so a lot of these things, like Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, they all have a lot of analytics and numbers that they can give you, views and audience information, average age, browser that they're using, a lot of interesting stuff. And some of that can be really useful. But um, I've decided that I really like podcasting. Um, And it's funny, because I I got into this with, it was an April Fool's joke on our Facebook group, and then my friends and family sat me down and had an intervention and said, you have to make a podcast. Which is funny, because if you check the College Humor YouTube channel, they recently had a video of you should not start a podcast, which was kind of the opposite of that. Uh, And it was funny, I was watching this, and I'm like, this is the opposite of what happened to me. Um, 
and so I enjoy it and I don't want to be doing it driven by numbers or data, analytics, things like that. I want to have fun with it, enjoy it, and connect with the audience. That's the part that I enjoy. We could get a thousand views uh, and we could get one viewer mail and the viewer or listener mail is the thing I'll get excited about. So I've just decided I'm going to stop looking at those statistics uh, and they'll just have to take care of themselves. But that's, that's the approach I'm going to take. Speaking of viewer mail, um, we had previously heard from Brad, and so I had also emailed him back uh, to let him know that we were covering his, uh, his uh, question on the previous podcast, and he had responded, so I just wanted to share again uh, an email from Brad. Uh, you know, I like it to be the listener mail segment, but for now it's like the Brad mail segment, and we're fine with that. Brad, you're our favorite. Brad, thank you for responding. We find that doing cruise-related activities, such as reading blogs and watching videos, help pass the time between cruises. Even though we are experienced cruisers, we find your videos fun and informative. Never would have thought about how many ships we've been on until you mentioned it. Everyone talks about days and sailings, but not the number of ships. Since we've been on some ships multiple times, the number of ships do not equal the number of sailings. There's a terrific site, Cruise Critic, that has a bunch of cruise information that you might like. Discussions, reviews, etc. Keep up the good work. Uh... First off, Brad, you're our favorite kind of person, so thanks again for writing in. Um, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm curious about how you initially discovered us. Uh, was it through the podcast? Was it through a YouTube video? Was it, was it Tumblr? Do you recall? Most of the things I found over the years, I don't remember where I found them. Uh, honestly, I think I found Cinemassacre through Wikipedia, and I found Pat Contry through Cinemassacre. I remember that, but I don't remember how I got into other things, like Keith Olbermann, for example. Um... So we're just, I'm just kind of curious because, uh, you know, we, we want more people like Brad. <laughs> so, you know, if it was because you, you saw a YouTube video, saw a Tumblr post, or you just somehow found the podcast, uh, we'd be curious about that because um, we, and, and I totally get that feeling where you're waiting for the cruise and it's just starting to drive your, mi your, your mind crazy. Like it's an ice pick in your brain. And like, I remember when we were going to go on the sunshine and that was a really long period leading up to it because it cost quite a bit. And so we were slowly paying it off. Uh, so I wasn't able to travel much leading up to it. So it was like a eight month slog of no travel right before that big trip. And so I was, I was rewatching our own videos. I was watching other things on YouTube. I was watching webcam from like Nassau and stuff like that. Uh, cruise terminals and stuff like that. And so, so, um, yeah, I, I get it. And so the fact that we're able to kind of fill that interest, that need, uh, is, it, it means a lot to us. Uh, and so you mentioned Cruise Critic. Uh, I am very active on Cruise Critic. Uh, it's not Vacation Impossible per se. It's just myself, Cowman, as a user. Uh, but I do share our videos in the video forum. Uh, I'm fairly active in the Carnival Cruise section and the Ask a Cruise uh, question section. Uh, so Cruise Critic can be uh, a really good resource. It's run by this, it's owned by this people who do TripAdvisor, but it's very different from TripAdvisor. It's a very different interface. It's a message board um, primarily. Uh, so uh, Cruise Critic is very good. Um, they were doing a thing where you could have a meet and greet on the ship that they would organize. That's gotten really problematic. The last three cruises where I signed up for that and there were enough people, it never actually happened. So that's not great. Um, also, their reviews, they have this really bizarre, specific high standard for writing a review of a cruise. And if you're not super specific to each one of their little, like, check boxes that they want to hear something about, they won't post your review. So the message board of Cruise Critic, highly recommended. But the reviews, 
Um, I think that it's going to be a real subset. If it's only the people that are going to take the time to fill out the review with excruciating detail, there's going to be a lot of people who have interesting and useful things to say that you're never going to hear from, from the reviews. So I recommend the message board of Cruise Critic, um, particularly. Um, someone who's actually traveled with us before, Jane, uh, she was in uh, one of our Las Vegas seasons where we went to Grand Canyon West Rim, which is, I believe, currently our second most popular video on YouTube. Uh, she actually contacted uh, me recently to ask about, from a Canadian experience, can you uh, recommend a good website or company for annual trip multi-location travel insurance? She was unable to find anything. So... Um, Travel insurance is interesting. I want to break it into two categories. There's medical insurance, and then there's sort of like trip interruption insurance. The medical, in and sometimes they're bundled together, but sometimes they're not. And so you want to be careful that you're, you know what you're buying. If you're only getting trip interruption and you're expecting extended medical and it's not there, that could be a problem. So I used to book my medical coverage um, when I didn't have any third-party coverage in Canada. I would book it through my bank. And so... You know, for like a two-week trip, it'd be less than $20. And if you were traveling multiple times over a period, there were economies of scale where, you know, uh, you could get like a half year, a full year, um, you know, at a, at a reduced rate. So if you have nothing and you need medical and just medical only, uh, contact your bank and see what their, their prices are. But that's where I would begin my search. Um, currently, I have extended medical through my employer, and that includes travel. So travel medical... I actually don't need to worry about it anymore, thankfully. I could, if I wanted to, top up that insurance above and beyond um, for additional coverage for certain things. Um, I haven't really elected to do that, although I think we did that with Mindy on the Hawaii trip just because her health wasn't in the best. Um, but I am proud to announce that she is actually back at work as of last Friday. Uh, so it's graduated slow return, but she's doing better, and so that is some fantastic news that we're making progress there. The other half of this that I want to address is the sort of the trip cancellation, trip interruption insurance. I've never bought this in my life. Um, and so take my voice as one of many. I'm not necessarily telling you what's right or wrong. But in my experience of, I think, fairly extensive travel, there's only one time that I kind of wish I had it. And that was um, our second cruise where we were, we were flying to Miami to sail on the breeze. And there was nine of us in the group. And we were supposed to be taking a connection in Chicago. Sam had gone on ahead, so he made it just ahead of the snowstorm that came in. But then it shut down O'Hare. And so our flight was delayed by over 12 hours. So what was supposed to be leave in the morning, land in time for dinner, ended up being an overnight and so we landed in the morning, and so we had a Hilton property, uh, might have been a Hampton Inn, I'm not sure, um, this would have been late 2013, uh, and so they were not able to refund it because, um, because of the conditions of the price with which I paid. It was a prepaid, non-refundable thing. That is the only time in all of my years of experience that I was out any amount of money because of this sort of stuff. Generally speaking, when something goes wrong, the companies that you've booked with, if they have any conception of customer service, they're going to do something to make it right one way or another. I mean, you've seen various videos, and we've talked about things on the podcast before, when we had the spa problem with Carnival. They ended up making it right eventually after we got on, on land. When we had the ant infestation at Tampa, uh, at the Hampton Inn Airport East, I think it was, um, you know, initially the experience wasn't great. They made it right later. The two or three cruises we've been on that have been diverted because, I think three or four actually, because of like weather, uh, high wind, hurricane, whatever it was, 
Um, they always made it right. They took us somewhere else. We got a discount on the next thing. We have had flights interrupted a couple of times. Uh, we were stuck one time in Minneapolis-St. Paul with an airline that's actually defunct now. Uh, and after some serious complaining, they eventually made it right. They, you know, we got a free hotel night. Uh, when there was a storm that, again, uh, we were uh, on the Paradise, uh, no, uh, Mike and I, Coming back from uh, Tampa, there had been a storm that had interrupted flights again at through, passing through Chicago. That, um, you know, they ended up, we got the discounted hotel at cost. Uh, and then they, you know, rebooked our flights for us at no cost. So, generally speaking, if you have an open mind about your travel experience uh, and you're flexible, then I personally have rarely saw the need. And to think about it this way, I was out one hotel booking in my entire life to date. If I had paid for trip insurance every single one of those times, I would still be down, I think. Uh, and so I think I have come out ahead of the game. It is a risk, I admit, but I think by and large, if you know how to complain and you deal with reliable, trustworthy companies like Hilton and Carnival, who, it's not always perfect, but when it goes wrong, they make it right, then you can, you can travel with some degree of confidence. So that's just my personal perspective. Take it as you will. But uh, that's, that's just sort of how, how I roll, <laughs> uh, as, as it were. So um, uh, I, we know somebody who is going to be very shortly going on their first ever cruise. And so they've had some interesting questions for us that, from an experienced cruiser standpoint, might sound very basic. But for someone who's never cruised before, they're totally valid. And uh, I just want to kind of address those now. So if you're an experienced cruiser and you find this impatient, feel free to skip ahead a little bit in the podcast. Um, but I want to cover uh, two um, basics of sailing with Carnival. And so the first question is, what is the sail and sign card? So this is a plastic card with a magnetic strip that has your name on the front, as well as something called a folio number. This is like your account number. This card serves a couple of purposes. It, um, they take your picture when you check in, and they associate that electronically with the card. Your picture does not appear on the card, but whenever they swipe your card on their computer terminal, your picture will come up so they can make sure that the right person is using the card. And this is important for a couple of reasons. The card is used for gaining access on and off the ship, both initially when you get on the ship and at port, and when you leave on the last day. You do not want to lose this card. If you do, it can be replaced to guest services, but you have to bring ID, and, and it's a process. So it's your access on and off the ship. That's important. It is also your access to your room. It is your room key, much like in a hotel these days where you have the, the, the credit card-looking thing gets you in and out. On certain ships, like the Breeze, you also put that card in a slot to turn the lights on in your cabin. It's only a few small handful of ships, and honestly, you take a piece of paper, fold it the right way, and put it in there like a business card, that'll work too. It doesn't have to be your card. Any card in that slot gets the job done, but that's just one of its various functions. And then we get to one of the most important functions on top of all of that, is it's connected to either a cash deposit or your credit card so that you can make purchases on the ship. So this is why, for example, there's no cabin number on your card. It has your muster station, not your room number. So that if you lose it, if you drop it, someone can't use it to get into your cabin or potentially try and access your funds. Now, it is tied to your picture, though, so that should help prevent that as well. So if you want to get a drink, you present that card. You want to book an excursion at the desk, you present that card. By and large, you pay for everything using your sale and sign card. Please, please don't take your credit card anywhere on the ship. The first thing I do when I get on the ship, 
I get into my cabin, I take the credit card. Well, actually, I put my whole wallet in lock in somewhere that's locked. I might put it in the safe, or I can put it in my locked luggage. But walking around the ship, you only need your sign-in sale card, maybe your cell phone, and maybe a couple of single-dollar bills or fives, maybe tens. Nothing much more than that. Um, maybe a twenty, because. If you go and you go up to the bar and you bust out your credit card, they can do nothing with it. They can only charge things to your sale and sign card. And you're going to look a little foolish. So I don't, I don't want you to go through that. I see it happen and I just, I, I empathize, I cringe, and I'm like, oh no. <laughs> Mindy did it one time and it was painful to watch. And so really, don't, don't take out your credit card on the ship ever. It, no one can use it. And, and, and my recommendation for the sale and sign card is to not use a cash deposit, but to tie it to your credit card. If you do the cash deposit and you need to add more, you have to go wait in line at guest services to do that. To get money off of the account at the end that you haven't spent, you have to again wait in line at guest services. That's time you should be enjoying your trip, not waiting in a line to handle cash. It's, it's much more stress-free if you use your credit card. Yes, they will put a hold, uh, a pre-authorized uh, claim on your card of $100 or $200 or however much, depending on how long your sale is. Um, so account for that, but anything you don't spend, that, that, that ava those available funds will be freed up within a few business days after the sailing. So as far as I'm concerned, it makes way more sense to use the credit card. Why do you carry some cash, though? You might want to carry some cash for uh, tipping purposes. For example, if, and we've said this before, but if you're in the piano bar and they play the song you like and they do a good job, throw a dollar or two into the jar. If you're in the atrium and the guitarist plays your song or does a good job, a little tipping cash. Those are places where cash is appropriate. Why would we go up to a $20 bill? Well, you can be generous for tipping. That's cool. No problem there. But the reason you might want to go all the way up to, uh, like, say, like a 20 is that if you're at the comedy show and the comedian afterwards is selling their own CD, DVD merchandise of some kind, they only would take cash. They don't have an electronic way of charging it because that's just something they brought with them. They're selling privately. Similarly, if you're in the piano bar and they're selling their own CD or something like that, you're going to need to pay cash for the exact same reason. That's not something I do very often, but I did buy Natalie Carboni's CD uh, when uh, we had her in the piano bar on the Sensation, and that's some of the best money I've spent on a cruise ship. So um, that's that's the only time you should bust out the cash. Never ever bust out the credit card, and and hopefully that kind of gives you an idea of what the sale and sign card is. In in hotel parlance or resort parlance, you charge to the room. On the cruise, you charge on your sale and sign card. So that's that's what that very core function is. The color of the card indicates your loyalty. Your first time is blue, your second time is red, 25 days sailing, you get the gold, and on from there. So, the second Carnival Cruise Basics question. How does the food work? So, there is a main dining room called MDR for short sometimes, with those of us who have been in it for a while, and we know the acronyms, we don't sound like we know what we're talking about. Uh, so for that that is the sit-down restaurant where you were served by a waiter and a beverage server, that sort of a thing. Um, on formal night, that's where you need to dress up to receive service. It's the only place you need to dress up to receive service. It has a dress code. There's cruise casual and cruise formal, uh, which we have YouTube videos out that will explain to you in detail what those mean uh, on the different days. Um, so they have standard service, and there are three options for how you can eat. There's your time dining, early dining, and late dining. Uh, 
Your Time Dining is the one we generally use because you can go anytime and it's like going to a cheesecake factory and you just wait for a table. And if there's a long wait, they might give you a little, a little uh, you know, a beep or a, a page or something. And within reason, you can wait in the atrium, listen to some music, grab a drink at the bar, whatever, hang out, uh, and then you get buzzed and you go in when a table is ready. With Your Time Dining... There may or may not be a wait, but you can go whenever you want, anytime the hours of the restaurant being open. So you have a broader period of time you can eat. So if you're on an excursion that brings you back late on a port day, or you're just not hungry at a particular time, you get a lot more flexibility, but you understand and you accept that there's a bit of a risk that you might have to wait for a while. Uh, the food's all free anyways, so it, that, that I like for the, for the flexibility. Uh, you know, you might have a scheduling conflict with a comedy show that you want to see or something like that. So, um, your time dining is what we normally do. Um, the other option is early or late dining. Those are very similar. They have set times. The early is obviously early. The late is about 8.15, I believe. And so with that, there are some benefits and drawbacks. The benefit is, is that you don't have to wait uh, once the time has begun. And so on your first day, you show up, you show your card, and they will show you to your assigned seat. This is the table you'll be dining at the entire length of the cruise in that restaurant in the evenings for dinner. It's a little different for lunch and breakfast. Lunch and breakfast is like your time dining. You just show up and they seat you. Uh, and because those seatings are not so busy, you generally don't have much of a wait. So when you do your time dining, it's a different table every night, possibly, or it might, might be some consistency. You could have a different waiter and beverage server every time. You could be seated somewhere that's like maybe you're near the engines, or maybe you got a great view of the dancing. So there's randomness there. With the scheduled time dining, the early or late, you have the same waiter, beverage server, and table the entire time. And so the first day, you're shown your table. From every subsequent day, you just go there at like 8.15. They open the doors, and everybody scrambles to their table. And so it's like chaos for a second, but then suddenly everyone's seated. And so you get consistency. The waiter, the beverage server gets to know you. They might know your drink order. Uh, they might know if you have bottomless bubbles, bring you that Coke as soon as you sit down because they know you like it all the time. Uh, I've had that experience. So there's benefits and drawbacks to both. You know, your mileage may vary. Choose what suits, well, suits you well. That's the main dining room. But that is not the only option for food on the ship. There's a variety of others. So on Lido, there's a buffet that is open most hours of the day, sort of in the early morning to like maybe 11 o'clock, midnight time, uh, depending on the ships. And so they're, and they do have little periods where they might shut down for like an hour from like 4 to 5 to switch over from lunch to dinner, something like that. But by and large, something is almost always open on Lido during sort of standard waking hours. Uh, and so they'll have buffets. They'll often be like a salad bar. Um, they'll have different buffets that might uh, have the food offerings change day to day. Um, and like some of them will be themed. It'll be like Italian or All-American or whatever uh, on different, um, different times. And uh, sometimes they have special things like maybe they might have late night good eats where there's like hot dogs and cheeseburgers from like 11 till 1, something like that. Uh, so the, the Hub app or the Fun Times, either of those will tell you the different times that you can get what kind of food uh, at, the, at, at Lido. So Lido's normally a pretty good bet. You can go up there. Another option that is 24 hours is the Pizza Pirate. They have four or five different types type of pizza. I recommend the margarita or the um, the pepperoni. Those are both very good. You can also get a Caesar salad, although I find it a little heavy in the anchovies for me. That's 24 hours. You can always get that. With an exception. I have been on the odd ship where the pizza pirate converts to the omelet station for breakfast. 
And yet they still say 24-hour pizza everywhere, but you can't get it during breakfast hours. That's normally in the fantasy class for smaller ships, um, and so I've only encountered that once or twice, and honestly, I didn't want pizza at that time anyway, so it didn't bother me, but it can be a little misleading on one or two of those ships out there that do it that way. Um, so there's that. Uh, on some of the larger ships, uh, or the newer ships, or the ones that have been recently renovated, you might have other things like uh, Guy Fieri's Burgers, um, you know, different things like that. You could have the Italian restaurant, which is normally free for lunch, pay for dinner. Uh, so, you know, with each ship, there could be specialty things. Uh, some things cost more, like the Steakhouse or Bonsai Sushi. So look out for things that might cost something. But what I'm talking about, the MDR, the Lido, the Pizza Pirate, those are all free. There's generally a grill as well, uh, where you can get like a Reuben sandwich, really nice ham and cheese, uh, you know, grilled cheese, whatever. Um, so those normally are open most hours. Um, I think it's like 11 to 11. They're often open, something like that. It can vary by ship. Um, so that's another option. And then there's also the room service. Room service is 24 hours, but the menu has two components. One component is the free food, and the other component is the uh, food that costs money. I don't personally use room service very often because I've got two feet in a heartbeat and I can go up to Lido just fine. They do have some things on their menu you can't get elsewhere, like uh, PB&J. So there's a, there's a couple things that um, are sort of special to them. And when you do order room service, even if it's the free stuff, generally it's accepted that you will tip the person delivering. Uh, a general standard I know that Cam and Burton have used in the past is $1 per item they bring. Um, so there's that. Part of the room service also they have a breakfast thing where you fill out a little hanger and put it on your door by a certain time and you select a certain time that the food comes in the morning. So there's a lot of varieties of food options available. 24-hour ice cream or frozen yogurt stations are normally up and running. Hot chocolate, water, you know, uh, iced tea, lemonade, those sorts of things are available as well. Um, one thing that might confuse a new cruiser is that on a carnival ship you generally have more than one restaurant. And so the restaurant you're assigned to will appear on that sale and sign card. The Truffles restaurant, the Paris restaurant, whatever it is, it will be identified there. And that is often tied to your type of dining. For example, your time dining could be in a different restaurant than the scheduled dining. And so you want to know to go to the appropriate place. But that doesn't mean you can pick and choose. You pick when you check in online, preferably, which kind of dining you want, but you don't get to pick and choose at the restaurant unless you maybe, you, you could game it out and figure out which is which if you did some research, if you really cared. Uh, it does, I don't think it makes a difference as to the quality of the food. It's just the location of the restaurant, really. Uh, on some smaller ships, or depending on how the ships are laid out, it might be different levels of the same restaurant. So, uh, you know, deck uh, five might be scheduled dining, and then deck four could be the your time dining, uh, even though it's the same name of the restaurant. So, Hopefully that explains from sort of a, a, a novice and a new perspective what the dining options are on a cruise ship, on a carnival cruise ship, and, and, and what those options are and kind of how they work. Uh, I know personally, obviously I don't like, you know, uh, going in unawares and saying, doing the wrong thing, going to the wrong place. I'm glad I've never been the guy to whip out the credit card at the bar. Um, so just trying, to, just trying to help you, to, you know, have a bit more fun, save time, and uh, be a bit more comfortable. So you can just enjoy your cruise and have fun. That's what you should be focusing on, not how, do the, how does this work. That's what we're here for, uh, to hopefully explain. So those were just some of the basics. Um, one question that we hear sometimes is, how does being Canadian make your cruise experience different? And so it doesn't have a lot of impact. I talked in our previous podcast about like currency conversion and how that's a factor. The other challenge is there aren't a lot of Canadian ports. 
So Vancouver is a carnival port technically, but at most they generally sail out of Vancouver twice a year. And we're talking on the more expensive trips, the journeys cruises. So we're talking Alaska and Hawaii. So that's a challenge. We always have to, almost always have to travel to the, the port of departure. Um, one of the questions people are asking constantly on Facebook and other platforms is, do you need a passport? Well, as Canadians, we always need a passport. Uh, because that's how we're going to get to the American port of departure. Um, or if it is a journey's cruise, you know, Alaska, Hawaii, it's ending in another country. We need a passport. So uh, I can't really speak to the American experience, but if you're Canadian, have a passport, especially if you're going to cruise. Other than that, I mean, you'll be on the cruise ship and you might encounter the odd terminology thing. Like one thing that I noticed when I first started cruising, to, or when I first started traveling to the United States at all, as a Canadian, when I want a Pepsi, I say, you know, I order a pop. That's what we call it for short. That's the vernacular, the colloquial. It's what we call it. It's normal. Hey, I'm going to have some pop. In certain parts of the United States, and it's hard for me to determine exactly where, they don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Uh, so soda seems to be the global term. So I'm actually trying to shift my language and say soda more. It feels funny when I say it. I feel like I'm putting on airs or a fake accent or something. But soda is sort of a bit more universal. I've been told that there are parts of, I believe, the south of the United States where all soda is actually called Coke, which is weird. So you'd be like, hey, can I have a Coke? Okay, what kind of Coke? A Pepsi. Or like, hey, can I have, do you have Coke? Sure, what do you want? I want a Mountain Dew. I... I haven't encountered that personally, but I've heard stories. So um, that's one of the like little language things that can come up. Um, generally speaking, as a Canadian, uh, I'm not like branded as having a funny accent. Uh, like once or twice, someone thought I was Australian for some reason. I can't explain that. Um, but by and large, I think the Canadian accent is a lot like an American accent. I think you know Vancouver sounds like Seattle. I imagine. So um, that doesn't really come up. There's the odd time that there's jokes or other things in the comedy club that are a little outside the Canadian frame of reference. So, like, we talked about before on the podcast that they were joking about the Section 8 cruise. Uh, you know, the, the, actually, the cruise I'm about to take is, is that kind, the four-day sail that just goes to Mexico. Uh, it took us a while from, like, we had to figure out what Section 8 was through context, and, like, later when we got Wi-Fi, we wikied it and stuff, and it's about, I think, subsidized housing or something. So there's the odd specific American term that is kind of specific to their experience, but that comes up very rarely. It's really, it's really not often that it happens, and it's never a barrier to anything. So, I don't know, that's, that's sort of the, the, the gist of it, mainly. Um, as a, as a Canadian... It doesn't, it, uh, you know, in the comedy club, they'll be like, anybody here from, you know, Texas or Kentucky and stuff? And Canada often gets left out of that. Or if it is Canadian, you scream all that much louder and you see the other ones. And, you know, it's always noteworthy and stuff. But I don't know. That's about it. I had an odd experience in Texas where I was taking a shuttle from the airport. And there was a woman who was advocating for a certain political person running for uh, president at the time. Uh, in the primaries, in the Republican primaries, that she was trying to convince us to vote for. And we were trying to tell her we were Canadian. And uh, she still was like, well, you got to support this person. And uh, one of her points was like, oh, you know, uh, because uh, the Canadian healthcare system is an absolute mess, which is just not true. It's not my experience. It's not my family's experience. I don't know people who've had that experience. It's not perfect. Sometimes we're kept waiting to see a doctor a little bit longer than we would like. But other than that... You know, um, and one of the, the examples I point to is my mother basically beat cancer inside of a year. 
And so she was pushing really hard, saying, oh, well, your health care is a mess. And we're like, no, it's really not. Um, and she's like, yes, it is. And I was like, well, my mom beat cancer in a year, and it didn't cost her a penny. So from my experience, it's okay. She says, no, that didn't happen. And I'm like, do you think I'm lying? She goes, no, you're confused. You don't know what happened. That's not what happened. And I'm like, do you know my mother? Is my, are you and my mother in cahoots? Like, trying to convince me of something happened that didn't happen? Like, that doesn't seem to make sense to me. Um, so there's that odd thing where, you know, there's, there's certain things that in the political sphere have been said about Canada that, like, are just crazy. Um, but I encounter the healthcare myth more than I do the everyone lives in igloos thing that, like, was probably more common like, the 80s or something. So from the Canadian perspective, one interesting thing, though, is online. Um... It doesn't seem like there's a lot of Canadian cruisers active on things like Facebook and Cruise Critic. That's one thing I've noticed. Largely Americans. I actually started a Facebook group called Canadian Carnival Cruisers. Uh, and other than my friends and family, nobody seems to have joined. Whereas, you know, all the other sorts of groups, huge. You know, you can start a, a Texas group or a Florida group or whatever, and you'll have tons of people signing up all the time. Start one for the entirety of Canada. as crickets. So... I think that maybe we're just a little less active online, a little less vocal, perhaps. I mean, Canada has one-tenth the, of the U.S.'s population, so that's going to be a factor in these sorts of things. But, you know, other than that kind of stuff, there's not a lot about the Canadian experience that's different. It's, I think it's really about the traveling to the port is really the big thing, because uh, it's never we just drove to the cruise port and went, or, you know, we took 12 sailings a year because it's out of our backyard. We don't get that experience. But other than that, I don't know, it's not, it's not that different. So, um, one thing that uh, people often talk about is stateroom door decorations. So, uh, I thought I'd just give you a little tip to how do you know if you're on a Vacation Impossible cruise. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see behind me up here, we've got this new thing we just got from Vistaprint. It's a magnet that we're going to see about putting either on our door or the wall that's next to our door that's going to identify our cabin. Because people like to decorate their cabins. Uh, it's a birthday, it's an anniversary, a honeymoon, whatever. People put stuff up. It has to be uh, fire retardant so that it won't uh, perpetuate a fire. But uh, other than that, you can put stuff up there. And it's actually kind of cool walking by. I've noticed since they changed the rules about the fire retardant material, like, there's much fewer decorations that seem to be happening uh, on the doors. And so that's a, that's a little bit of a shame. But every now and then we've seen, like, lewd things put up on the doors. So I'm glad that there's a little less of that because, you know, kids walking down the hallways and seeing inappropriate things on doors. So, you know, you gotta, you got to consider this a family uh, environment on the ship. But uh, what we used to do is I used to take one of our business cards, our Vacation Impossible business cards, and I would put it in, like, the mail slot or wedge it in the, uh, in the, in the plate that identifies the room number, something like that. And that's kind of fun. Uh, you know, hopefully it advertises our content. Um, but one thing that's actually really handy about that is it makes your room identifiable. You've had, like, two or three kisses on the lips and a couple of shots of fireball, and you're stumbling back to your room. Having something that makes your room stand out from the other rooms is not a bad thing. So uh, we're taking it to the next level on this particular cruise with this new, uh, this new magnet thing up here. Uh, so looking forward to that. Um, but that's about as far as we've gone with our decorations. But that doesn't mean we don't appreciate other people's. Oftentimes in Facebook groups or through Cruise Critic, they'll have a competition to see who can decorate their door the best. And people will sign up and there might even be prizes. And so, uh, you know, uh, as long as it's non-flammable, go nuts. And, and keep it PG-rated at worst as well. But other than that, no, it's great. I like, I like seeing it. One question we often see coming up frequently is, what's your favorite ship? And for me, I love the Breeze. It's the newest and biggest ship I've ever been on. 
Uh, it was the second cruise I ever took. It was the cruise I took with the most people in our group, this group of nine. Why do I like the Breeze as my favorite ship? They've got cool water slides. It's a big ship. They've got a big open Lido deck so that you can have really big deck parties. They've got the Guy Fieri's burgers. They've got a lot of different food options. Um, so, and I mean, a lot of what I'm saying is true of most of the Dream class. The Breeze is just the slightly newer, slightly larger of the Dream class. I have yet to be on a Vista. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that I like. But really, favorite ship? It changes so much. How can you truly have a favorite ship when the cruise director and the piano bar entertainer is going to change constantly? So, like, I really loved Butch when I was on The Breeze, and he was a big part of why I love The Breeze, but he's not a cruise director anymore. He's been promoted throughout the Carnival organization now. Uh, he was actually leading the split where they were where they were creating an entertainment director separate from the cruise director uh, so that they can focus on, on various different things. And, and it seems to have worked well for Carnival that other lines are starting to adopt the model. And so he was front-running that, so he's obviously a great guy. Um, you know, runner-up, I, I love Mike Pack. He's awesome. I've sailed with him twice now on the Glory and I think on the Breeze. Uh, and he makes a great experience. Piano bar entertainer means so much. You put Gustavo or Natalie on any ship, and that's my favorite ship. Uh, and same with the cruise director with Mike Pack. If I could get, like, Natalie and Mike Pack on, like, I don't know, the Vista, that would be amazing. That would be, like, the best cruise ever. And so it's, but so it's very little about the ship. It's about the people, in my experience. And so it's, it's hard to have a favorite ship and really push it hard because I know that it's going to fluctuate so, so much. Um, so Carnival has announced their next ship name. We had the Vista, the first of her class. Then we had the Horizon. And so we were kind of joking and talking about what's the third one going to be called, because I believe they ordered three initially. I was like, oh, is it going to be called The View? It's been named The Panorama. It's okay. I don't know. I'm not big on ship names anyways. Um, it's fun, though, if you can get a pun going on. You know, how was your vacation? It was a breeze, you know? <laughs> Where did you take your vacation to? Paradise, you know? You know, are you inspired to get on the inspiration? You know, the puns can be a little bit of fun. Uh, so I don't care a lot about the names, but sometimes it can get a little confusing. And Panorama is often the name of a deck. And so are you going to be on Panorama Deck on the Panorama, which is Vista class? Like, it's going to get, like, a little confusing there. And, I, and so, I mean, I get the horizon, the Vista. It's all about things that you see, possibly, you know, from the ship and stuff like that. I get the theme, but it, I don't know. It's okay. Um... So apparently, in somewhat recent news, Royal Caribbean was sued over Hurricane Harvey. So they were allegedly pressuring their passengers who had booked to travel to Houston as Harvey was approaching because uh, they said that if they didn't make a good faith effort to get there and the cruise had not yet been canceled, their refund would be at risk. So a bunch of people got together and have filed a class action lawsuit about Royal Caribbean for this. And it's just, I don't know, it's weird to me because... It's like a natural disaster and stuff. And so it's like, were they really pressuring? How do you prove it? It's going to be an interesting case. Um, I'm hoping it doesn't have a big negative impact on the industry at all. But it's like, it's, you can't predict the future. Like, you look at the tracks that hurricanes have. And they call them these spaghetti tracks because they, look, they go everywhere. It's like you threw spaghetti in a wall. And, like, the European is going to have this curve, and the Americans think it's going to go this way. And uh, it's all really predictive models, but there's very little certainty. Did Royal Caribbean pressure people actively, or was it a matter of that they called in? And, like, because I could see, you know, it goes this way. 
Uh, hi, Royal Caribbean. Yeah, I'm uh, wondering, is my cruise canceled? Should I not be flying to Houston? And guys going to be like, uh, no, according to my information, that's still happening. So, you know, you should, you should plan on going. Well, okay then, thank you. Was that pressure? That doesn't sound like pressure to me. At the same time, somebody calls in. Hey, look, I heard a hurricane's about to hit Houston. Can I get a refund on my cruise? Well, no, you can't. You got to get down there or your, your refund's going to be a risk. We, we might cancel it. You might get a refund then. But if you don't get on that plane, you're definitely not getting a refund. That's a little bit different. How do you prove one from the other? Where's the legal boundary? What kind of evidence exists? Did somebody record these calls? Did they have legal consent to record those calls? I don't know. Um, but it's interesting because people need to take some personal responsibility, of course. And so I'm not saying that Royal Caribbean is right or wrong because I don't know what scenario played out. The devil's in the details in this sort of thing. Um, but I do know that Carnival's pretty proactive. And so uh, I, I, I can't imagine that Carnival would behave that way. And that's one of the many, many reasons why I'm loyal to, to Carnival is because I think they handle those things very well. Uh, the few times that I've been diverted, it's always worked out relatively well. But again, because I come from that philosophy, if I'm on a ship, I'm happy. And so, like, getting to the ship, that yeah, that's the thing that could risk the vacation. And so um, I feel for the people who are stuck in that situation. Um, but, I hope, you know, I, I just hope people take some personal responsibility because it's really difficult for the cruise to be responsible for things that happen tangentially to the cruise prior to the cruise. It's really hard. Um, and so is this also going to get into a case where someone will call in and be like, Royal Caribbean, hi, is uh, your cruise canceled? Should I be getting on a, on a plane? I'm sorry, for legal reasons, I can't answer that question. I don't want that interaction either because like people need to be able to give contextual advice. Um, and uh, without being held to a legal responsibility, perhaps. Say, well, I can't guarantee anything, but my suggestion is this. Take it or leave it. Make your own adult choice. Something like that. Um, but, you know, I, I feel for people who, who get stuck in these situations, but also sometimes it's like you got to, you have a legal obligation to mitigate your own cost and risk. So if you've been wronged by another party, a company, a person, whatever it is, and you awfulize and you do something to make it worse, um, you're not responsible for the increased costs of your responsibility. You're supposed to mitigate the damage. So, you know, if your neighbor has a hose running uh, and they threw it over the fence and it's running and flooding your basement and you see it there and you start filming it and you don't turn off that hose, then you're not mitigating the damage of flooding to your basement. You know, and so maybe it floods the first floor of your house as well, where if you had turned off that hose, it would not have done that. So you're not going to be able to claim the damage from the first floor because you had an opportunity to mitigate the damage. So it's, it's a rough analogy, but... You know, if you're like, well, they told me to go to the port, so I'm going to drive my car straight into this ditch full of water, you're not mitigating the damage. So uh, it's, it's difficult. People need to take responsibility and be responsible and form travelers as much as they can, use the resources that are available to them. Um, so was Royal Caribbean wrong? Were the passengers wrong? Is it shared? Couldn't tell you. Let's let a court make that determination. But I just found that interesting. Um, one question that we sometimes get is, would we ever consider taking a cruise for New Year's Eve? Um, and that's kind of, uh, I'm of two minds. I think it would be really cool to celebrate New Year's on the water. That'd be awesome. I know it would be a sea day. I don't know that I'd want to do it in port, because then why take the cruise? Um, but at the same time, I don't know. I like, I like being home when things are unusual. And so, like, the week bef between Christmas and New Year's seems to be a week unlike any other. Um, you know, there's different implications at work. Sometimes people might get off work early for, you know, New Year's and maybe you're not there. You don't get that advantage. Uh, if you really care about, like, 
your time off to the hourly level um, and other things like that. And so I definitely would not take a Christmas cruise. I'm just going to say I love Christmas. I love spending time at my Christmas tree that I put up with my ornaments that tells my history of travel destinations and other things. Like, And, and it's, it's not an orderly tree. It's not a color-themed. It's not all black and white or purple and blue or whatever. It's, it's chaotic as anyone's life is. And so each ornament has an age and tells a story. I've got my Vegas ornaments, my cruise ship flotilla that I put on the crew, on, on the, um, on the ship every uh, year. I'm missing a couple because they've been sold out in the fun shops every now and then when I've been on board a ship. Um, so there's a couple that I still need, uh, even for ships I've already been on. But uh, I just love being around there for that. So I don't... Th- uh, cruising in December... Well, obviously I do it. I'm about to do it. I've been on the Glory in like the second week of December once, and that was really great and lovely. You know, Santa showed up. They did the fake snow, decorations, Christmas tree, Santa mailbox, all that stuff. I love that stuff. It's fantastic. But the actual Christmas day, Christmas morning on a cruise ship doesn't doesn't feel right to me. I don't know. And it's just maybe my background, my own personal experience, what I want for me and my family. Um, but, hey, people who love that, all the more power to you. I imagine it's expensive because kids are out of school. And maybe there's a lot of competition. I don't know. So if you disagree with me, if you think that cruising for Christmas is the, is the bee's knees and you want to do it, then be glad that I don't because by me not competing with you for those cabins, the price is cheaper. So, you know, there's, there's benefit in our disagreement. <laughs> and if you do agree with me, then you can just nod your head and feel good about yourself. <laughs> but New Year's Eve would be, I'd be more willing, but I imagine it would be expensive. And I don't know. I would take some convincing. Um, but I think that's true of, like, all holidays, especially if it involves time off. I think it's going to drive the cost up, and that's where it gets problematic for me. Let's take an ordinary, bland November week and make that something special. New Year's is already going to be something special, and you can do something really cool close to home. So that's that's my general thinking there. Um, some people have talked about bad smells on cruise ships. Um, there is the odd time that you get a smell, sometimes in your cabin, sometimes in the hallway, that's unpleasant. I mean, obviously, if you're on Lido on the side that's smoking, that's going to be unpleasant if you have any sense of smell left. That notwithstanding, we're talking about unpleasant smells in or near your cabin. And so, in my multitude of cruises, I think I've done 16 to date, I've had two where there was an unpleasant smell. One was in the hallway, you know, near my cabin, and one was straight into my cabin. When it's straight into your cabin, it's a little problematic. Um, there's not a lot you can do. Uh, the air conditioning is kind of limited. Maybe that's a flaw of Carnival, because uh, I've never really been impressed with their air conditioning. Um, and sometimes the controls don't seem to make a big difference. Like the Fantasy Class, there's that thing in the ceiling you can turn the knob. Um, and others, they've had like a, like a temperature th- uh, thermostat, but the thermostat, I don't know that it really makes a difference. It doesn't feel like it does, or it's so marginal, it doesn't impact your experience. And at that point, what's the point? But anyways, I think that, um, uh, so that you can't do much about. Spray some cologne inside the vent and hope for the best. I don't have a lot to say there. Um, for the hallway, um, it, you know, it was, it was, I think it was something that maybe gotten into the carpet or maybe it was a vent. Um, so you could bring it up to your cabin steward guest services if you want to, um, you know, your mileage may vary. Uh, but if it's in the hallway, generally there's two ways to get anywhere. I just take the other way around. Um, you know, if you're on port with run starboard, 
you know, um, if you're like at the back of the ship, just kind of whip around uh, or whatever. Take a different elevator, set of stairs, whatever. Um, so if it's in the hallway, don't really let it impact me that much. And maybe I'll get a couple more steps walking another way and run into somebody that's cool or something. I don't know. See a decorated door I wouldn't have otherwise seen. Try to see the upside in these things, the benefits and the surprises. So uh, it hasn't been ruinous you know, it, the one time it was in the cabin, was it kind of sucked a little bit, but even then, it's like you, you build up a tolerance and you adapt to it to a certain degree, and, and I just think that there's not a whole lot that they can do. It's not like they can rewire the vents and the air conditioning that might be taking an air intake near the near the funnel. There's not much you can do about that. It's kind of a design flaw. You can provide feedback. You can mention it on the survey you get afterwards, but it's not really worth getting, like, really upset and getting into, like, customer service, service recovery, like my spa rant. My spa rant was a human failure that could have had a human uh, uh, fix to it and could have been successful sooner than it was. And so that's the kind of thing, like, they chose to be escalating the situation. They chose to be difficult and obstructionist and things like that. That's where, like, getting into a customer service recovery frame of mind makes plenty of sense. But when it's something like the, the ship that was designed and built in the late 90s has a bit of a flaw that results in a smell, they're really limited in what they can do. you got to kind of, my, I mean, my advice is try to be reasonable about it and do what you can to mitigate it. Um, it's not like there's extra room on a cruise ship. They always try to sail as full as possible, and I think they generally get the job done. They've been at it for a very long time. They know what they're doing, and so I don't think they're going to have extra rooms that they could move you to unless somebody ends up in the brig or something. An entire cabin of people end up in the brig and then taken off the ship or something. So um, one thing people often ask us about is things to do in Cozumel. Cozumel's a nice port. Um, there's things that you can kind of do. There's some shopping and restaurants right at the port there, which is nice. Um, you can also go for a walk uh, just out of the port area. There is the Hard Rock Cafe, which is nice. Uh, they've got some uh, free Wi-Fi there that has a ridiculous password. <laughs> so most Hard Rocks, the password's Hard Rock. Not that one. The, the network and the password is not Hard Rock. It's like crazy. Tons of characters and numbers and... You know, but uh, you can do that. You can walk into, you, you could, if you're able-bodied and healthy enough, two feet in a heartbeat, walk your way to downtown. And there's some cool stuff to see downtown, different shops and things. Uh, uh, and and the, the walk down there is not that bad. There's some stores and, you, you know, you walk along the water um, to a degree. It's paved, you know, you're walking on a sidewalk, but it's near the water. So um, that's pretty nice. Um, the excursion that I've done in Cozumel was to uh, Passion Island, spelt with one S. Um, and it was by Power Catamaran, which was awesome. We've got a couple of videos up from that uh, excursion. Um, and when you're at Passion Island, there's like kayaking, free food and drinks. Uh, the kayaks are like solid plastic things, so it's not really like a real kayak, but you, know, you, get, the, you get the experience. Um, and they got these floating things, which is kind of like Wipeout. We call it Wipeout Cozumel in our videos because it's a lot like that show Wipeout where people would be on the inflatables and bounce right off into the ocean. And, and so that was a lot of fun. We, we went there in February, and so there was a bit of a problem with seaweed. But you trace through the seaweed, and then you're out in the ocean, and that's fine. They had something called the Twister, which takes you to the same place, but it's in a speedboat that is apparently capable of inverting itself on a horizontal plane, doing these 180 flips. I saw it zip by. I don't think I saw it do the flips. I definitely want to do that. It's more expensive. It sells out early. So if you want to do the Twister, book that early. It's one of the few things I recommend you book early because it will sell out. Um, there's also something there called uh, Mr. Sancho's, which I've never done. So perhaps in a future season, we might check that out, because people talk about that a lot on Facebook. And so uh, possibly in a subsequent uh, trip to Cozumel, maybe in June, I think we're going there on the Miracle, we might check that out uh, so we can report back and tell you all about that. 
One thing to remember about Cozumel also, I've said this before, but I want to remind you all, especially with the news, is that it is an island that has no violent crime. Its biggest crime is pickpocketing. There have been a lot of accusations cast around about tainted alcohol and things of that nature, and while in some parts of Mexico it's a very serious concern, and also kidnappings and murders and assaults and things like that, but Cozumel isn't generally part of that experience because it is a well-regulated and pleased island. So other than a little bit of pickpocketing and you might not get the right price on that fan you want to buy, the haggling could be a little dodgy, but Cozumel you should feel very safe walking around in uh, versus, you know, Mexico City. So something to keep in mind when it comes to Cozumel. Um, one thing that is often asked of us is what is your favorite carnival drink? It's the kiss on the lips. It's delicious. It's just fantastic, and it's fun to order. Um, I remember the first time I was on a cruise with Sam, and I ordered a kiss on the lips. I turned to the waiter, and I said, I would like you to give me a kiss on the lips, please. And the look on Sam's face was priceless. He was, like, leaning over the table to be, like, on his face, said, Dude, you can't ask for that. You can't make people do that. I don't think he's into it. Um, and so that's just fun, but it's also super tasty. And, um, you know, for people who don't want alcohol, either because they're children or they're abstaining, um, the, there's the virgin version, which tastes very similar. I like to drink for the taste. If I'm not drinking water to hydrate myself, I like the flavor. And so, like, I like Fireball. That's my other thing. I like Fireball shots. Uh, Natalie got me onto that in the, the piano bar. These are flavor experiences. It's not for me about getting the highest alcohol content or getting drunk. So your priorities will vary, but for us... Kiss on the lips every time, at least for me. Uh, and so I enjoy that. Um, and so that largely brings us to the end of this Vacation Impossible podcast. Sorry it was just the Raycast, but what can you do? That happens. Um, so, you know, we're going to be hopefully uh, taking another trip in February. Uh, we might be heading over to Victoria, BC, Canada for John Con again, so we might do a podcast over there. Uh, also in February, we're looking at possibly sailing on the Freedom. Do check us out on our various social media platforms. Uh, YouTube is what really uh, we're all about, got us started. So it's youtube.com slash vacationimpossible. This, uh, you know, podcast is available on a variety of platforms, so please subscribe, uh, you know, review the podcast, give us a like on whatever the platform supports. That would mean a lot to us. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Uh, we're trying to get on some other different platforms. Uh, we've submitted a request to Spotify. We're waiting to hear back from them. Uh, we tried to get indexed with the CBC, um, but that doesn't appear to have happened yet either. But, uh, you know, it's vacationimpossible.podbean.com. So you, that's sort of where we primarily host it. And then from there, it's carried on a bunch of different platforms. So do please, you know, check us out. Share, subscribe, all that kind of fun stuff. We're on Twitter. Impossible is the name. Just because Twitter had a character limit on its usernames when we signed up. We are on Flickr. We're on Tumblr. We've got a blog where every now and then... I recently wrote something about the question of what is a, what, go, what makes a good life. Uh, as somebody who was able to take six cruises in one year, for example, you know, some people might look to that and think that's a pretty good life. So I was asking, I was, I was you know, writing about the philosophy of what makes a good life. Um, spoiler alert, the conclusion I came to is, I think, having a good struggle. I don't think it's having all of your challenges taken away, but having a challenge you enjoy. Uh, a charity that you're passionate about, a social media platform you're trying to be successful on, these sorts of things. Uh, it's not about having it all. It's about having something to accomplish and work towards that's fulfilling and rewarding, and hopefully not just struggling to get by. Um, that's sort of the conclusion I came to there. So there's different kind of content all over. We're on Instagram. We're Vacation Impossible. We're trying to do a little bit more a live thing. 
things. I've been trying to do some live video on Facebook. Uh, so we're on facebook.com forward slash vacation impossible. Um, so I, I just today did a thing where I was dressed up uh, using a, a filter that I was a wizard. <laughs> uh, so, you know, uh, we're trying to make it, we're, we're on Snapchat as well. We're trying to make it so that you, know, you get a little something different on all the different platforms so that there's there's stuff that's worthwhile. We used to be on Vidme, but that's going away. So don't worry about that so much. And um, thank you all for listening and for, uh, you know, all the, all the questions and the topics and the interactions. This is really a lot of fun for us, and so I really hope that, you're, uh, that you enjoy it as well. We always like uh, feedback and suggestions on the future. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time, probably in the new year. So Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Happy Hanukkah, and we'll see you in 20